Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. We're told that then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Sicilia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him. We're told that they seized him and brought him to the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, speaking of the temple, and change the customs which Moses had delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at Stephen, saw his face as the face of an angel. Though it's hard to say with absolute certainty, most scholars believe that a year or so has transpired between verses 7 and 8. It would seem that over the course of this year, the church not only adjusted to, but thrived under this new organizational structure. With the newly appointed deacons caring for the daily distribution and the apostles focusing on prayer and the ministry of the word of God, Luke says that over the course of these 12 months or so, the word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied. And while this glimpse into this flourishing church is fascinating in its own right, and we made some observations, some comments about that last Sunday, verse 8 of Acts chapter 6 presents an interesting and significant transition, not just to the chapter, but understand the book of Acts and its entirety. Well, most of Luke's history at this juncture has focused primarily on what Jesus was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, focusing on Peter and John in particular. His narrative now shifts, beginning with verse 8, away from the original 12, by focusing first on the life and ministry of a man named Stephen. This story of Stephen will carry us through the end of chapter 6 through chapter 7. Then in chapter 9, we'll sh shift to a man named Philip, another one of the seven uh, deacons. We'll get another glimpse in chapter 10 of Peter, and then things will transition ultimately to the Apostle Paul. So we're beginning to move away from the work God was doing through the Apostles now focusing on two deacons in particular before ultimately discussing the conversion life ministry of the Apostle Paul, which I appreciate. If you're like me, I hope you're not, but if you are, it can be difficult. It can be difficult to find the Apostles relatable. I mean, as we've been traveling through the first couple chapters, I mean, God does amazing things, profound things, awesome things. 
things we can learn from, things we can grow from, examples we can model and emulate. But still, the apostles, the apostles to me are, are like the most unrelatable bunch of Christians ever. I mean, consider them. They had been hand-selected by Jesus. They had traveled with Jesus, ate with Jesus, had bonfires with Jesus himself. They were buddies, close-knit. They high-fived one another, cried with one another. These men were a unit. The apostles, the A-team, they were champions of the faith, pillars of the church. (laughs) They authored the New Testament. Good grief, the apostles will have their names written in the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. Your name and my name won't be written in the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. You see, to me, the apostles, while awesome and glorious and cool, inspiring, I don't know, I I look at these men and and I kind of feel as though that they had a leg up on me. Do you ever feel that way? You read about them, you see their faith, you, you see God work in them and through them in awesome ways, and you're like, wow. But, well, I mean, they're the apostles. Like, we kind of expect that God would work through the first pope the way that he did. Me, maybe not so much. But this is where Stephen is so inspiring to me. This is why I, I like Stephen so much. Because in contrast to the apostles, Stephen's story and his person are incredibly relatable. And here's why. Stephen's story and how his life developed is fundamentally no different than yours and mine. Stephen, like you, not an apostle, he wasn't an apostle. As a matter of fact, he hadn't even been present according to scripture and church history, for the earthly ministry of Jesus. Stephen had not been an eyewitness of the miracles Jesus had performed or the teachings that Jesus had given. Stephen hadn't witnessed Jesus' death. He wasn't there. He hadn't seen Jesus' resurrection from the dead or ascension into heaven. As a matter of fact, there's no evidence to state that that Stephen had, had been one of the 120 original disciples They're at Pentecost. Now, Stephen could have been there at Pentecost to see what took place, but he was on the other end of the equation. He was not one of the original 120. You see, Stephen was and is our first example of a second-generation believer, a second-generation Christian. For some reason, maybe it was by accident, happens chance, could have been the invitation of, you know, another Christian. Maybe it was a, another Christian, a friend himself that was engaged in a dialogue. At some point, Stephen, we can surmise, was exposed to the message of the gospel. He listened to the teaching of God's word. And we can imagine that he began to grapple under the weight of a growing conviction. You see, Stephen was one of these Hellenistic Jews. He was Hebrew in regards to his ethnicity, his origin, his his culture, his religion. But he was Greek. As a matter of fact, Stephen is a Greek name, Stephanos. 
And so this man, on one aspect, was trying to live up to the law, but because he was a Hellenist, probably not even living in Jerusalem at the time, he also kind of struggled with culture. He was one of these fence-sitters, trying to obey the law, trying to be a good Jew, but also had an allure, like culture had an appeal. He dressed like a Greek. He taught like, taught like a Greek. He was Greek, but he was a Jew. Stephen was kind of this interesting guy, but at some point he hears the gospel. And whether it occurred immediately or over a period of time, at some point in his life, because of this growing conviction over his sin and the fact that the case for Christ was persuasive, Stephen broke down and made a decision to follow Jesus. We can conclude that in regards to this man. We don't know much about his story. We don't know how he converted. We don't know when he converted. We don't know what age he converted. But we know at one point he was lost, and then he was found. At one point he was dead in his sin and his trespasses, but then in another, he made a decision to follow Jesus. His life experienced regeneration. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen rejected his religious self-righteousness. He repented of his sin. He surrendered to Jesus. He accepted the sacrificial atonement and his life that was once shackled by sin and weighed down by the burden of religious condemnation. It had been freed. Stephen had been set free by Jesus. Now, it seems reasonable to conclude that soon after making this decision, Stephen would go public with his faith by being baptized. He would declare to the world, to his family, to his friends, to those that were proving to be hostile to Christianity, that he was now a follower of Jesus. We can also reason that Stephen immediately began attending this local church in Jerusalem. The context affords us that liberty. Stephen, as a member of this church, would enjoy all of the benefits that came with being a part of this new family of God. In the process, Stephen would receive from the church godly instruction through the faithful teaching of God's word. Stephen would experience from this church community the joy of being a benefit from the discipleship and the accountability of godly influences. As Stephen continued to grow in his newfound faith, as he continued to experience the fruit of being in this church community, the teaching and the accountability, at some point Stephen began to realize that being a part of a local church wasn't about what I get from that church, but that it was also about what I give. You see, at some point, Stephen began to transition from being a consumer to also being a producer, a contributor. Stephen began to serve in response to everything that Jesus had done in his life. Without title, without specific directive, we can conclude that Stephen simply started caring for those around him. God had loved him, had blessed him, and so he began to become a conduit of blessing for others. And over time, as he grew in his knowledge and the grace of God, Stephen developed a good reputation before all of the people, the Hebrews, the Hellenists, the apostles. Stephen was a man that was teachable. He modeled a humble spirit. He remained submissive to the authorities God had placed over him. Acts 6 is clear that it was because of this good reputation 
and the fact that he had already demonstrated a heart for service, that when the need arose concerning the care of these widows, that all of the people, along with the apostles, unanimously concluded, they universally agreed that Stephen would be the ideal candidate to be a deacon. Matter of fact, that might explain why Luke lists him first in the name of seven. Now, as affirmed by all who knew Stephen, we also know that he was full of wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit. We discussed those things last Sunday, but we're also told that he was full of faith. Some of your translations might say grace, faith and grace come one in, one in the same. Others can translate faith as conviction, that he was a man of faith, of conviction, of grace. But he was also a man in whom the Holy Spirit was clearly demonstrating great power. This word power is the word dynamis. And in this Holy Spirit power, Stephen was not only equipped with the gift of service to fulfill his role as a deacon, but this spirit power also empowered him to do more than just wait on tables. That the Holy Spirit manifesting through his life, yes, in the gift of service, also from our text, was manifesting in two other ways. Through the gift of evangelism and also the fact that he had the ability to perform great signs and wonders, miracles. Now, the very fact that Stephen was having disputes with the freedmen revealed that this table waiter also had a heart for the lost. I can see Stephen finishing up his role as a deacon, caring for the needs, wrapping it up, making sure this church is straightened up, locking the front door, and immediately going to the local watering hole to share his faith. Stephen had a heart for those within the church, but he also had a heart to reach those outside of the church. He wanted his faith to be seen by all, to be demonstrated by all. And apparently, as with the ministry of Jesus and then later the apostles, the manifestation of these miracles, these signs and these wonders, they validated God's call on Stephen's life and also validated, well, his ministry, his message. And because Stephen, his experience and the mechanism for his growth, the mechanism for his development is fundamentally no different than yours and mine. Well, there's lots that we can learn and apply from Stephen's example in our own lives. Like, in essence, if, if God could use Stephen in incredible ways, and there's nothing that makes you any different than Stephen, then God can use you in incredible ways. We look at God using the apostles, and we think, well, that's cool, but they were the apostles. Stephen, there's no distinction. There's no difference. He was a regular Joe, second-generation Christian, same with you. There were those that were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection and then those that walked by faith. We all fit Stephen to begin with and then us later in this other category. So we look at his life and we can be inspired and motivated by what God did in and through the life of Stephen. You see, the first thing we can learn from Stephen, from his example, is that a Christian's purpose is to simply be faithful with the things that God places before you. You know, I have found that Christians really struggle with the concept of purpose. While most want their lives to have meaning, many grow frustrated in their present circumstances because, well, it's difficult to see how these things, the things we're facing, the job we're in, 
the ministry we're in. The fit, like, it's hard for us to place these things into God's overarching plan for our lives. You know, I've never met a Christian, at least a sincere one, that didn't have a desire to see their life genuinely matter for the kingdom. I hope you want your life, the life that God not only created and designed and programmed, but then also died to redeem, to set free, this life. I hope you want your life bought by the precious blood of Christ to matter. I, I hope that your, your ambition is like, you know what, God, I'm so glad you made me the way that I am. You before the foundations of the world, you knew me. And then because I was mired in sin and death, that, that, that you sent your only begotten son to die on the cross to then save me and set me free from Thank you so much for all of that. And in response, I just want to be a total loser. Thank you, God. Like, thank you for doing all that for me so I can do nothing. As a matter of fact, I'd like to sit in the basement, play video games, smoke weed, and be totally worthless. I don't know too many people that have that particular approach. Now, they might live that way, but, but in, in their mind, they're not thinking, I, I just, I want to have no redeeming purpose at all. Like, as a matter of fact, you know what would be awesome when I die and there's my tombstone, that it just says nothing. It's blank. Because my life mattered. Didn't matter at all. Like, no one feels that way. No one, no one ends up that way. And because we want to matter, what appears from our perspective to be mundane becomes very difficult to handle. You see, many Christians who find themselves shackled to a job in which they see no eternal value end up wondering if they're actually wasting the very life that God has for them. I am doing this fill-in-the-blank. I don't see how this impacts the kingdom. Am I wasting my life? I want to matter for you, Jesus. I want my life to count for the kingdom of God, but I'm looking at this, I'm wasting it because I can't reconcile this with a great overarching purpose. See, part of the struggle rests with the conventional wisdom that in order to successfully reach a destination, one must first know the destination you're seeking to reach. You know, and then once you add those two data points, you can determine the best way to map out your course of action, like how you can reach the destination. This is graduation season. This is how we handle it with students. You need to figure out what you want to do and then set a course of action to fulfill what it is you want to do. Discover, figure out what your life will be about because if you can do that, then you can map out the most effective way to get there. As a matter of fact, we, we would even refer to overachievers as the people that can figure out the, the, the quickest, most effective way to get to the destination, right? Like, who can circumvent education that can be just total geniuses that don't have to do it the way other people do it and can figure out a loophole, the overachiever. We set the destination because then we figure it's, it's most effective to, to find our way there and we carry this over into our own lives. You see, many reason that if God would just reveal his purpose for their lives, then, well, they'd know what they're supposed to be doing and they can plan accordingly. But sadly, this mindset contributes to this frustration <laughs> because God actually works completely counterintuitive to this way of thinking, this conventional wisdom. You see, instead of the destination when it comes to the way that God works, 
determining the course of action, like the, the way the world works, the course of action, well, that's actually the destination. Let me explain. In a teaching in Luke chapter 19 on the topic of service, Jesus established a very simple principle concerning the kingdom of God. He said, if you are faithful over a little, I will make you faithful over much. And while it's true that this means that proven faithfulness is the only way to greater responsibilities, don't overlook what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is telling all of us that the purpose for each of our lives is not the task at hand, but being faithful in the task at hand. It's not the task, it's faithfulness. If you're faithful over a little, I will make you faithful over much. You see, little and much come secondary to what dominant word? Faithfulness, to be faithful. You see, if you see God's purpose for your life as being some work that God wants you to do, as opposed to simply being faithful to do the work God has before you, then you will, I promise, find the Christian experience very frustrating. This is why I think the whole idea the whole concept of trying to live a purpose-driven life while like packaging really nicely in the self-improvement section of Amazon actually fosters this frustration for one simple reason. The idea of God giving me the destination so that I can figure out how to get there, well, it's not in line with how God has structured the life of faith. You see, Stephen... Stephen demonstrates for us that every believer, that the purpose for every believer is actually the act of being faithful concerning the things that God has charged to your care. Now, it's clear that Stephen, he would progress to greater responsibilities. I mean, when you look at his life, he gets saved, and then he plugs into the church He's being ministered to by the church, but at some point he decides to serve. Like he begins as an unrecognized servant. If he saw that there were people straightening up the chairs, he helped straighten up the chairs. And if he saw there was, there was a little old lady in the church that needed her lawn, he just took his mower over and he took care of it. If he, if he noticed the lawn at the church, he just was active. He didn't need directive. He didn't need title. He didn't need someone saying, hey, go do that. He was like, I see a need. I'm just going to meet it. He begins as just an unrecognized servant. He just serves. Jesus did so much for him. Why wouldn't he? And then he moves, right, because he's found faithful in that. When there's a greater need for greater responsibility, the people, the apostles, they're trying to figure out who's the right candidate. They see Stephen just serving, and they're like, hey, this unrecognized servant should now be a recognized servant leader. He should be a deacon. He didn't seek out to be a deacon. It wasn't his five-year plan. It wasn't like him working his way up the ladder. It was just being faithful in one thing. He then became faithful over the next. He didn't have to, like, figure it out. It just happened. And then over the course of time, as the Holy Spirit's still working in his life and working through, a year passes. We see that now he's not just, like, taking care of the tables and the practical, physical needs, but now he's an evangelist. He goes from being an unrecognized servant because he's faithful. He then ends up being a recognized servant leader to then being an anointed evangelist. It was a progression. 
It worked naturally. You see, never once did Stephen ever focus on anything other than just being faithful with what God had placed before him. If God placed it in his hands, he was faithful. And because he was faithful, what ended up happening? More was placed into his hands, greater responsibility. And then what happened? More was placed into his hands, a greater responsibility. You see, it was organic. It wasn't as though Stephen gets saved. And then he has this vision of being an evangelist. And he sets like a, a, a five-point plan to achieve that, which is how most of us, most of us are inactive in our faith or in service because we're waiting. We're waiting for God to give us that vision. What is my purpose? What is my calling? What am I supposed to do, God? When God's like, you're just supposed to do. Like, you're just supposed to serve. Like, you let me handle where you go or what's down the line. You just look at whatever's in front of you and be faithful. This is what Stephen teaches us. I hope you understand that if you trust God with your life, then you need to recognize that no matter how trivial, how pointless, how mundane you think the task in front of you might be, that God has placed these things into your life for a reason. Understand that job, that role, that ministry capacity, understand that there is, if you trust God with your life, an eternal purpose and what you see right before you. I'm gonna tell you what that purpose is, for you to be faithful. That's your purpose. That's your point. Keep in mind, the most glorious words that you ever wanna hear Jesus say to you is when after death, you stand before him only to hear this, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your, of your Lord. Do, do you catch that? It's not, well done. You did this and this and this and this. These tasks, that was your purpose. Awesome job. No. Matter of fact, he skips over all that. He just says, wow, well done. And how does he evaluate whether you're well done? As opposed to being overcooked? That's your found faithful. Please understand, faithfulness with what God has placed before you is the only way that you'll discover the purpose, which is to be faithful with what's in front of you. You trust God, you believe God, you let him handle tomorrow, and you place your focus with what's today, what's in your hands. Now, the second thing we learn from Stephen is that a Christian should expect to be treated, well, by the world like they treated Jesus. You see, though Stephen's primary role was church-centric, caring for the physical needs of those within the body, as we mentioned, it would seem that he had a heart to preach the gospel to the lost. Some view Stephen as an evangelist, Others can build the case that he was the first apologist. That doesn't mean he was going around apologizing, but that he was instead defending the faith, that he was going out, engaging in conversation, defending the faith from the skeptics, from the critics. Either way, we know that the audience that would often debate, would dispute with Stephen, were these men from the synagogue of the freedmen. 
History tells us that this was a prominent synagogue located in Jerusalem, but it had three branches. Cyrene, which was an important African city located in the province of Libya. Alexandria, which was the capital of Egypt, and Cilicia. Now, Cilicia, this is an interesting detail. I need to make a a side observation because this will be setting the scene for things moving forward. But, But note, the capital city of Cilicia, and Cilicia was kind of a region in what we would call southern Turkey. The capital of Cilicia was Tarsus. Most speculate that probably the branch, the synagogue of Cilicia for the freemen was located there in Tarsus. And for the student of scripture, you will note that an important character we will discover from this town of Tarsus, a man of notoriety, a man that was an expert in the law, a man very possibly not just a member of the synagogue, but here disputing with Stephen, a man by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who we will know as Paul. And they disputed with Stephen. Now, the word disputing in the Greek, it presents the idea that there was a debate. Not that it was necessarily of conflict, but that it was, it was of knowledge, that it was uh, two different sides coming together cordially, hashing out concepts with one another, that they debated matters of theology. And in the process of their conversations, of these debates, it would seem from our text that Stephen's efforts actually bore some fruit. Luke says that there were those not able to resist or to to withstand or, or to oppose. And then Luke tells us why. Two reasons why they weren't able to resist. First, the wisdom by which he spoke and the spirit by which he spoke. The word wisdom is the Greek word sophia, meaning to be full of intelligence. This indicates that Stephen was able to substantiate his arguments with facts. He defended his positions using a combination of scripture, logic, reason. Please understand, Stephen went into the world, but he went into the world armed. He went into a knife fight with a knife. He was armed with scripture. He was well-versed, well-studied, (laughs) well-prepared. Tragically, there are too many stupid people that speak for Christianity to the world around us. Have you seen them on Fox News where they'll have the fundamental Christian perspective and you're like, this is driving me crazy because that's not even close to being representative of a biblical perspective? Like Stephen knew his stuff. He could articulate his stuff. He was well-versed and well-prepared. He was a good defender of the faith because he was well-prepared to defend the faith. But we're also told that it was the spirit also by which he spoke. This word spirit is the Greek word pneuma. Now we know that this word can be a title for the Holy Spirit, but also realize that it can simply mean to have a pleasant disposition. And I like that. Like, we know what made Stephen the way that he was. Well, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And yet the people that were engaging Stephen saw what this thing in Stephen that we know the Holy Spirit, they saw it as a pleasant disposition, which means that they were experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the life of Stephen without even knowing it. 
Like, why did he have a pleasant disposition? He had a pleasant disposition because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. His words oozed love, but why did they ooze love? Well, because he had a pleasant disposition because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, they were experiencing the work of God without even knowing it, which I like that because Stephen was practically being what? He was being salt to the, to the world. People could interact with him and get a taste of God without even knowing it. In addition to the soundness of his arguments, what made Stephen so persuasive was that he was able to present his positions in a way that the opposing side didn't feel attacked, didn't feel belittled, that, that they could respond without defensiveness. You see, apparently, and this is a good bit of advice for anyone that would try to engage lost culture with the gospel, which, which I hope you would, the way Stephen presented his arguments were just as persuasive as the arguments that he was making. You see, it's sad, but I've heard apologetics defined as the attempt to win the argument and lose the soul because of pride and because of ego and because of arrogance. There are those that go out with a sense of spiritual superiority. And yes, they might win the argument, but in doing so, they alienate the person. Okay, yeah, intellectually, you make a lot of sense, but if following Jesus means I'm like you, no thanks. You see, it's not just by our intelligence that we should engage, but it's also by the way we use our intelligence that we should be loving, that should, we should be tender. If you want a good example on how to do this, just pull up any Ravi Zacharias question and answer. Like, really? Just YouTube it, find a Robbie Zacharias question and answer. He goes into the brightest universities uh, in America and will, and will field questions. And they're always laced with venom and, and they're, they're arrogant and they're, they're just, the way that the question gets presented, you're like, get him, Robbie, get him. But the way that he goes about it is so tender. Like he has an ability to answer the question and kind of make the person look like an idiot without feeling like an idiot. I like that because that's how I feel often, like an idiot. Engage culture, but not just with your words, but may your words communicate your heart as much as your mind. Now, though that there were some who were not able to resist, Luke also makes it clear that there was a contingency of those who not only resisted, but grew vindictive in the process. It's true that a hurt ego and a prick conscience can be a dangerous combination. What's interesting about this story is that we see here the same playbook being used to target Stephen that was used some four years earlier to target Jesus. Did you see some, some similar phrases? They secretly induced men. They set up false witnesses. They stirred up the people. Same way they treated Jesus. This means that those that were resisting Stephen privately bribe men to commit a crime by spreading false accusations. Thou shalt not, what? Bear false accusations. It's one of the ten. These men would falsely claim that Stephen had been speaking blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the temple and the law and their customs. Had Stephen done those things? No. You can sense how they were twisting his words to imply he was saying something he wasn't. And it would be obvious that the goal was to incite a mob 
to act out against Stephen without fully knowing what Stephen had done worthy of an outcry. Keep in mind, Christianity is very popular right now in Jerusalem. I mean, in the court, I mean, multitudes are getting saved. The only people that have like a problem are the religious people. Everybody else is like into it, in it to win it. This is awesome. Like the idea of there being a mob of people stirred up against Stephen seems weird because, well, everyone kind of loves these Christian people. Thousands of them exist in the city. Like if one mob would rise up, another would crush it. You see, they in, engaged people in such a way that there was mob think, that they were acting out without actually understanding why, that they were stirred into a tizzy, which means that Luke is setting the case that though we'll see Stephen ultimately die for this cause, it was unjust, that even the people found Stephen to be relatable and likable, but that they lashed out because they resisted the message of the messenger, and it was these religious people. I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer it out loud. I just want you to consider it. But as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, what type of relationship do you really expect to have with the world around you? Have you ever really thought about that? Have you considered it? Like, what, what relationship do I want to have with the world? Like, do you have the expectation that the world will be, should be, as tolerant of your beliefs as they want you to be of theirs? Is that an expectation? Like, what are your ideas of how the world and you should interact? Please remember, Stephen had done nothing wrong. He believed in Jesus, was a faithful churchgoer, even volunteered. He wasn't in leadership. He just was a servant, man. There's no indication that Stephen went out proselytizing. He just defended his faith. He enjoyed sharing these faith with, his faith with those that were interested. Stephen's speech was meek. His life was above reproach. But because he spoke the truth and defended the truth, Stephen became polarizing. Some people accepted while others resisted. Please understand that the reason people find truth so offensive is that truth by its very nature, is exclusive and divisive. By definition, truth distinguishes between what is right and what is wrong. And since truth is the one position, the only position that refuses to accept all other positions as being equal, the speaker of truth is often branded as being offensive, judgmental, and often isn't tolerated. Stephen's story, his life, presents an important reality. How people respond to truth directly determines how they'll respond to the person speaking the truth. It's the general lesson we find in the way that Jesus was treated. Some accepted him and followed him. Those that rejected killed him. If a person accepts truth, they'll accept a speaker of truth. But if a person rejects truth, every Christian should go ahead and accept that that person will not only reject you, but will actively resist you. Now, we live in a culture that is growing increasingly intolerant of fundamental Christian truths. And because of this, we also live in a culture 
that's growing increasingly intolerant of the Christians who speak and believe those truths. Today, even ESPN, the, a network dedicated only to 24-hour sports, like these are people that are suffering from early onset dementia because of the concussions from football. And yet, what do they do? If you watch ESPN, you will find over and over and over again that they brand, smear, and ostracize from society any person who takes a position other than the full celebration of homosexuality as being a bigoted homophobe, unfit to have a voice in the public square. And that's unfair. But that is the direction we're headed. If our sports networks will handle it that way, how do you expect the rest of the world? Please realize that Stephen's only crime was that he refused to leave his beliefs at church. That was his crime. Though Stephen would lose his life because he spoke words of truth to a group of people who didn't want to hear them, we should be wise to remember what Jesus warned us himself in John 15, verse 20. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, it's definitive, persecute you. Now, the third and final thing we learn from Stephen is that a Christian's commission is to be a witness by shining the light into the world. Ultimately, this mob brings Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And while he's standing there hearing these false accusations, one of the most peculiar things in all of Scripture happens. Luke tells us that Stephen, that his face looked like the face of an angel. Now, now Luke provides us no actual reason or exp, you know, explanation for why this is happening. And Luke is a doctor. We can conclude there's no natural explanation for this. It's something here that's happening. It's supernatural in origin. Ultimately, because, well, none of the people there had ever seen the face of an angel. It wasn't as though his face morphed into the face of an angel. But rather, this is a descriptive term to just, in the best way possible, say that Stephen's face, his countenance, it was heavenly. It's very limited in the way that, that we get this description in the council. I love it. Clearly something weird's happening because we're told that in the midst of these false accusations, these false words, this slander, all of this stuff, they stop and they just, we're told that they looked steadfastly. It literally means that they fastened their eyes upon. You know, you, you, you even teach your two-year-olds that you don't do what in public? Stare. And yet these guys are staring at Stephen. I can even see them pointing. Do you see it? Do you see what's happening? What in the world? Like he's there and he begins to like emit this radioactive glow. And they're, they're shell-shocked. Now next Sunday, we're going to look more specifically at the results of this occurrence. But this morning, I want to focus in finality as to the reason behind this occurrence. As a faithful servant, Stephen, we'd already seen, we already know, we can testify that he had been a witness for Jesus indeed. As an evangelist, Stephen had been and will be a witness for Jesus in word. So deed in word. But in this moment, 
Something totally different takes place. Is he saying anything? No. Is he doing anything? No. But he's being a witness how? By simply being. Because we realize that words and deeds don't always reveal the heart of a person, while the real heart of a person will always reveal itself through words and deeds, the idea of being a witness, as we've mentioned before, it is not predicated upon what you do or what you say. Being a witness is who you are. There's a reality when it comes to life that who you are will always determine what you do, ultimately even what you say. Just give someone long enough. What's inside ultimately comes out. So the important question is who are you? Like who are you? Are you more than this flesh, these bones? Are you more than your dysfunctional personality or your genetic predispositions? Like are you more than you? Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul actually answers the question for himself and for every believer. He declares that I have been crucified with Christ. Then he says something interesting. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And we know it's by the indwelling spirit of God and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith and the son of God who loved me and gave himself me. Now, admittedly, this idea of it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, the idea of Christ living in me, that's kind of strange. I'll admit that's a bit bizarre, which is why in trying to explain this phenomenon or what this actually means, what this looks like, in similar teachings on the same subject, Jesus presented an illustration. He used an illustration all the time that we could all relate to, light. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus not only defined himself as the light of the world, but then he said that the person who follows him would not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's also kind of strange. You see, the image that Jesus is presenting is that upon regeneration, when we're saved, the dark void of the human soul that's been left deadened by sin is brought to glorious life by the filling of the light of God. As Paul would state in Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5, that because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. Because we have been filled with this light as followers of Jesus we are not only now light bearers, we have the light of God inside of us, but we're now responsible to shine that light into the world. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus commanded those who have the light of life, basically something that we possess, something that we're given, something that fills us. He says, those who have the light of life, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And this is where this strange, peculiar, abnormal detail of Stephen proves helpful. Though what is clearly happening to him is some type of supernatural occurrence, don't miss the lesson. Stephen was doing nothing to manufacture this heavenly countenance. 
all Stephen was doing was being. He was being a witness. The light was shining. Why? Because the light was inside of him. And it came shining through for all to see. That being a witness is not what we do. It's not what we say. It's who we are. We are light bearers, which means our job is to go into the darkness and then do what? Be the light. To allow the light, to let the light shine through. It doesn't take effort for light to shine. All that has to happen is for it to be turned on and be visible. You see, we've all been given a commission to go into the world, to be witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. But understand, this calling, this commission is not cumbersome. As light bearers, our job is to not shine the light, but to let our light shine. This is what's so challenging about this story. Since Stephen's experience began and developed no differently than ours, there's no reason God can't work through your life in an equally powerful and dramatic way. There's much we can learn from Stephen. His conversion. Following this, he laid a solid spiritual foundation. He attended church. He contributed to church. Stephen trusted God. Trusted God with his future And he remained faithful with whatever God had simply placed before him. Stephen had a heart for the lost. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth outside the walls of the church. And when it was all said and done, Stephen, he proved to be a perfect witness, a model witness, a great example. By the way he lived, the way he served, and the words that he spoke. But I should warn you, there is a great danger in being faithful. It's the other lesson that we see with Stephen. Faithfulness is dangerous. Please note that it was Stephen's faithfulness that led him, that directly contributed to him being in the darkest situation of his life. It was because Stephen had been faithful by who he was, what he did, what he said, that he now found himself sitting here, being lied about, being slandered against, being falsely accused, sitting before a hostile court. His faithfulness led him into this dark situation. But please realize, his faithfulness also afforded him now the greatest opportunity to shine the brightest. Your faithfulness will not make your road easier. As a matter of fact, I think the people that God finds to be faithful because they're shining this light, the brightest, he sends into the darkest worlds. You know, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said in a parable, he says, no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket. But what does he do? He puts it on a lampstand. He exalts it so that those who come in may see the light. Stephen was faithful. And because he was faithful, because he was shining this light, God directly put him into a place to maximize that brilliance. Following Jesus, faithfully following Jesus, it will not always lead to fields of roses, but most often 
into dark valleys of despair. But there's a purpose. The purpose is faithfulness. The purpose is to radiate Jesus. And so, Father,